let's pray. Lord, thanks so much for your goodness, and thanks for your love and your grace and your mercy. And Lord, thanks that you are so precise in everything you do. And Lord, I pray today we would take away the fact that as you are precise throughout history, you've always been so precise, you are very precise in how much you love us. You're very precise in how concerned you are with the things that concern us. And so, Lord, help us to stand in that today in the light of uh, these words that we'll read. And we pray that you would just have your way with us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn, if you would, to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. Now, before we, go, before we start in on Daniel chapter 9, I'm going to say this. Uh, I recognize that some of us, church is a new thing. And that's awesome. All right? If that's you, I'm thrilled that you're here. Some of us are like, I kind of grew up in church, but I'm, if I'm honest with myself, I don't really know the Bible as much as I feel like I should, or whatever like that, okay? If that's you, that's awesome. I'm glad you're here. Some of you have been reading the Bible and studying it all your life. If that's you, I'm awesome. That's awesome. I'm awesome too, but that's awesome. <laughs> oh, goodness. I wish we could rewind the tape sometimes. But anyway, that's awesome. I'm glad you're here. And Daniel 9, if you read it one way, you'd say, well, that's just for those people that have been reading the Bible all their lives. Okay? If you're tempted to think that, try not to think that. Okay? Because who was the Bible written for? Everybody. Which part of the Bible was written for everybody? The whole thing. And, and I believe God reveals himself through his scripture. And so we can learn a lot about God. Now, I will tell you this. I'm going to reference a lot of different verses and, and stuff like that. And, and if you need the particulars on it, that's why we record this. Okay? You can go back. There's audio. There's video. There's all that. Okay? And... Um, and so if you feel like this is getting a little uh, detailed, uh, it does get a little detailed. I'm just going to tell you that. But can I tell you just at the outset, don't get, don't get bogged down in that. Is that okay? Still fishing. Is that okay? Yeah, thanks. Thanks. So, uh, um, yeah, that's that. That's probably enough disclaimer. Having said that, Daniel 9 has been called the backbone of biblical prophecy. Now raise your hand if you feel like you've got a grip on everything uh, prophetic in the Bible. Me neither. All right? But Daniel 9 is huge. And it's, 
it's foundational. And I think if you can get a grip on Daniel chapter 9, then you've got a very good grip on biblical prophecy, right? Nobody knows everything about biblical prophecy except, except God, right? But as far as biblical prophecy goes, if you've got a grip on Daniel 9, you've got a pretty firm grip on the big picture. Is that fair? So I don't want to shy away from giving you as much detail as I can about it, but I also don't want, if, you, if church is new to you, I also don't want to overwhelm you, but I'm going to try not to, but I'm also going to try to basically give enough so, so we can all kind of walk away and say, yeah, all right. I got a grip on Daniel chapter 9, the backbone of biblical prophecy. Is that all right? Just try it now. Just, just pretend. Just work with me now. We'll kind of role play a little bit. What are you going to say to yourself when you walk out of here? Hey, repeat that. Okay, you guys are slow. Repeat after me. Hey, I think I got a grip on biblical prophecy. Because I've crystallized Daniel chapter 9 in my head. Sounds like the orchestra before they get ready to play, right? When they're all tuning. Uh, that's a whole other story. Okay. The book of Daniel has 12 chapters. The first six are historical, like the events of Daniel's life. The second six, chapters 7 through 12, are all prophetic. Visions and, and stuff like that. Okay? And so we kind of pick this up, and then chapter 9 is, as I said, a big one. Chapter 9 has two parts to it. Okay? And just so you can kind of get the roadmap. The first part, the first uh, 19, well, the first really 23 verses uh, have to do with Daniel's prayer. Daniel is going to pray a prayer. And by many, by many people's uh, analysis, this is one of the greatest prayers in the Bible. So this is a great chapter to learn about prayer. And then uh, from, chapter, from verse 24 to the end, really just 24 through 27, is really, like I say, the, the, one of the greatest prophecy chapters in the Bible. So we're doubly blessed today with a great prayer chapter and a great prophecy chapter. Now regarding um, prophecy, there are different ways people interpret prophecy, and we've talked about this before, and we'll talk about it again, okay? Again, I want to appeal to everybody. When the Bible says Jesus was going to be born in Bethlehem, where do you think that means Jesus was going to be born? Okay, did I lose anybody yet? No. When the Bible said Jesus is going to be born of a virgin, you think he's going to be born of a virgin? Yeah. Now, again, I want to be uh, uh, generationally sensitive here, but the reality is if you were a biologist in like 10 B.C. or 20 B.C., you might be tempted to say, that's not possible right? But did it happen? So, very often our perception of the world, of science, of the laws of nature, kind of come into conflict with what the Bible straightforwardly says. And at the end of the day, what the Bible straightforwardly says wins, all right? Now, there's sometimes when there's a little bit of a metaphor or an allegory or a picture or a type of this and that sort of thing. Sometimes that's the case, but, but by and large, 
we choose here to read prophecy as literally as possible, okay? Number one, Jesus fulfilled it literally when he came the first time. Number two, if you've been with us for the last few weeks, Daniel prophesied about what in his day was future events that in our day we can look back. So in my mind, I got a, I got a mental timeline, right? Like I'm downstream from Daniel, right? But between when Daniel spoke the prophecy and some of the events that happened, I can look back on them so clearly and this is why Bible critics so often say, well, Daniel wrote that book like way later. He didn't really write that book when Bible people say he wrote that book. Bible critics say he wrote it later. Daniel was a historian. And what do we say to that? We say he was such a good prophet that he looks like a historian. Does that make sense? So, Daniel, for example, chapter 2, he said, you know, there's going to be a Babylonian, you know, there's right now a Babylonian empire. After that, there's going to be a Medo-Persian empire. After that, there's going to be a Greek empire. After that, there's going to be a Roman empire. We look back and we say, wow, he must have done that. He must have written that later because he knew everything. (laughs) He's a prophet, right? Jesus called him a prophet. He didn't call him a historian, right? He referred to Daniel the prophet. And so, Jesus fulfilled prophecy literally the first time. He'll probably do it the second time. Daniel spoke prophecy that was fulfilled very literally, right? So lots of reasons. Uh, Daniel uh, just predicted so much, so much uh, literally that uh, he really reinforces everything we've always said. All right? So, as you, maybe this, you're a person that's read the Bible for a long time, let me just tell you this. As you encounter different uh, approaches to prophecy, you'll hear some people that say, you know, everything Jesus mentioned in the Olivet Discourse, that's already happened. Because Jesus said, this generation will not pass away before all these things happened. Well, the word generation could mean race, right? I would take that to mean the Jewish race will not pass away before all these things happen, Right? And so uh, they would say, you know, we've been through the tribulation or we're in the millennial kingdom or something like that, right? Are we in the millennial kingdom? No. During the millennial kingdom, Satan is going to be bound up for a thousand years. Does it seem like if you look around, Satan is bound up, has no power over anybody? I don't think so. There's some that say, um, you know, we might be in the tribulation right now, right? The events described in the tribulation revelation chapter 6 through 19 are so cataclysmic that there's no way you could read those remotely literally and think we've ever experienced anything like that before or now okay so again we're going to go at it from a from as literal as we possibly can and let me just give you a big uh, if again if you this is new to you let me give you just a rough road map for biblical prophecy is that fair okay good So there's everything up until now, right? Including 1948, the rebirth of the nation of Israel, right? And now now we're in that sort of after 1948 period. I believe we're in what's called the church age. The church age, I believe, began on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, and ends at the rapture of the church. The Bible talks about it specifically in uh, 1 and 2 Thessalonians and elsewhere. There's going to be a time when Jesus comes we're going to meet him in the air i don't know how that works do i have to know how that works 
did I have to know how the virgin birth worked before 0 AD or whenever, whatever year it was? It wasn't exactly 0. Anyway. Somehow Jesus is going to come in the air and we're going to meet him in the air, right? And we're going to go back up to heaven with him, right? We're going to hang out up there while there's a seven-year period of tribulation on earth, right? During that seven-year tribulation, God is going to deal with the nation of Israel. We'll read about that here in a little bit. And at the end of that seven-year period, Jesus comes back now with his church to sort of lay to rest things on earth as they once were. Uh, the Battle of Armageddon, Revelation chapter, uh, I believe, 19. And then he sets up a millennial kingdom where, uh, what's the word millennial mean? Thousand years. You know what the Bible says how long that's going to last? Thousand years. You know how long I think it's going to last? Thousand years. Why do I do that? Same thing I always just said. Okay. Thousand years. During that time, Satan's going to be bound. And we're going to live in a time when the uh, Bible talks about, like, you know, a kid's going to play in the viper's uh, hole, uh, viper's den or whatever it is, and his mother won't care. Right? Young mothers of young children, you okay if your kids play with the viper? Pet the viper? Kiss the viper? Feed the viper? No, you don't like that. But in the millennial kingdom, that'll be fine. The lion and the lamb will lay down together, it says. There's just all kinds of descriptions about that millennial kingdom. It's going to be, it's going to be not heaven, but it's going to somehow be about as, about as glorious as we can experience. It really, think of the Garden of Eden before the fall. That's time on earth during that millennial kingdom. At the end of that millennial kingdom, that thousand-year reign, Satan's going to be released for a brief while. Uh, and uh, he's going to do a little more deception. And then after that, finally, uh, he's thrown into the lake of fire. There's final judgment, heaven and hell, and we are with the Lord forever. Amen. All of that because of Jesus. None of that because of us. All of that because of Jesus. So that's the roadmap, okay? So, Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, <coughs> the son of Ahasuerus of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. Chaldeans, again, another word for the Babylonians. Uh, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation, uh, desolations of Jerusalem. So, background. Israel is over here in Jerusalem and the, their homeland of Judah. And uh, Jeremiah is warning them, saying, you guys need to repent. You guys need to repent. The Babylonians are coming. The Babylonians are coming. The Babylonians are coming. They refuse to believe that. And Daniel said, or Jeremiah said, all right, Babylon's going to come and going to carry you guys captive. And you're going to be carried captive. How long did, did Jeremiah say they'd be carried captive? Seventy years. What do you think that means? 70 years. Reason number three. Reason number one, Jesus came the first time, literally. Reason number two, Daniel prophesied history very literally. And reason number three, Daniel's a pretty cool interpreter of prophecy. We've seen that already. How did Daniel read the book Jeremiah? Literally or figuratively? Literally. Daniel's been in Babylon now for 66 years. This is about 539 BC. Uh, Daniel's been there for about 66 years. He's reading the Bible. Pause. What's Daniel doing? 
reading the Bible. How's he reading the Bible? He's reading it faithfully. He's reading it as if God wants to tell me something today. Is he reading it like it's a psychology book? No. Is he reading it like it's fun poetry? No. Is he reading it like it's, uh, you know, Aesop's fables? No. He's reading it like it's the Word of God. He's reading, catch this now, Daniel is reading the writings of the prophet Jeremiah, the word of the Lord spoken uh, through Jeremiah the prophet. He's reading that, and he says, you know, Jerry said we'd be over here for 70 years, and it's been about 66 years. I'm packing my bags. That's how Daniel reads the Bible. That's how we should read the Bible. Don't read it like it's a psychology book or it's a history book or it's a poetry book or it's Aesop's fables or it's a, it's a cool thing to put on your coffee table. Read it like, God, I'm coming to you with a question. I've got a situation and I know that you are capable of delivering to me an answer to my situation, an answer to my question, an answer to my concern today, now, here, because your word is living and active and sharper than a two -edged, any two-edged sword able to discern the thoughts and intents of the heart. Yes. Your word is not an encyclopedia. It's your word. So step number one of, of the prayer part of this chapter is Daniel's reading it that way. He believes that there, there's going to be an end of the 70-year captivity and it's going to happen soon. Turns out the book of Second Chronicles, which is written uh, after this time to those captives that did return, Second Chronicles chapter 36, verses 20 and 21, and those who escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon, where they became servants to him and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. God is so precise that he gave the land its Sabbath. See, when the, when the Israelites came into the promised land, God said, every, 70, every seven years, you need to let the land rest. Did they obey that? No. Covetousness is as old as, as, old as time. And so they did not obey that. And so God said, tell you what. Now, if you do the math, it's not that they weren't in the promised land in exact 490 years. But God just chose that, you know what, I'm going to give that land rest. I'm going to give that land rest for 70 years. I'm going to remove its people from it. They didn't do their Sabbath. They didn't honor the Sabbath. Fine. I'm going to remove the people from it and give that land rest for 70 years. That's what God confirmed through Second Chronicles. And sure enough, that's what's about to take place. And so Daniel is preparing for God's deliverance of the captives. So he says, Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. And so, can I just point out briefly a pattern for Daniel's prayer? Daniel was a cool guy. We've said this. Daniel was a godly man. Daniel starts this prayer with a thoughtful, intentional reading of God's Word, as we said. He starts this prayer with an attitude of humility. He's asking God. He's coming to God. He's not telling God what to do. He's not barking out orders to God. He's not claiming what God needs to do in his life. He's like submitted humbly to God and seeking God. 
There's a big difference in how we approach God. Daniel's approaching him from a position of humility. It starts with an acknowledgement of God, of who God is. He calls God great and awesome. He identifies God's love and mercy. When Jesus taught us to pray, what did he say? Our Father who art in heaven. What's the next part? Hallowed be thy name. By the way, um, you could win Jeopardy if you know that, right? Uh, Because they didn't. That's another story, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. He starts with an acknowledgement of who God is. And this is how Daniel does. If we approach God with, a prop, with humility, with a proper understanding, with a, with a habit of reading his word, an understanding of who he is and who we are, we're in a good place. And so I'm just going to read, I'm going to read verses 5 through verse 12 as a kind of a chunk and just get the flavor of this as he's, as he's offering this prayer to God. He says, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to, to us, shame of face as it is this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off in the countries to which you have driven them because of the unfaithfulness they have committed against you. O Lord, to us belongs shame of face, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse of the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. And he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our judges who judged us by bringing upon us this great... uh, on us a great disaster, for under the whole heaven such has never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. So, Daniel's just identifying the situation. Can I point out Daniel uses the pronoun we a lot. Did you catch that? We have sinned. Now, we don't have any really recorded instance of Daniel sinning in the Bible, right? But Daniel takes this on himself. He says we. He's not blame shifting. He's not blame shifting. He's not blame shifting. If we want to have an honest prayer before God, we need to probably talk about our sin more than the sin of everybody else. Daniel is owning it. He said, we have not heeded the voice, the warnings of the prophets, verse 6. He says, we deserve to be in captivity because we have sinned against you, verse 8. And so now, verse 9, he appeals to God's mercy. He's not going to appeal to anything that he's done. Or, well, yeah, we did it, we, you know, we're a little bit good, or, or, you know, we're at least not as bad as the other guy. He didn't do any of that. He's appealing purely to God's mercy. So, basically, he's asking, if you will, God, hey, it's been 66 years. Jeremiah said it's going to be 70. Does Daniel believe that they're going to go back at 70 years? Yes or no? Does Daniel believe that they're going to go back after 70 years? Okay, so is Daniel praying, hey, God, please send us back because it's now approaching 70 years? Is he praying that? No, but he's sort of kind of leaning that way. He's kind of setting up for that, right? Here's the point. 
If God prophesied that this would happen, is it going to happen? So why does Daniel bother praying about it? I need a few more blank looks, right? Why does God tell us to pray? If God's going to do something anyway, why does God have us pray? Could it be that prayer is not so much me giving God my Santa Claus list, and maybe it's me lining myself up with the mindset and the perspective of God. Get it? Psalm, my favorite verse on this. Psalm 37 verse 4 says, Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Now there's two ways to read that, right? Ooh, if I delight myself in the Lord, I get whatever I want. Because my heart has desires. Bless my heart. Right? That's one way to read that. Or, delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the right desires. What do you think is the better way to read that verse? Second way. For sure. Daniel, I believe, is setting an example, and it's a brilliant example for us. Daniel is, in a sense, praying for a situation that he knows is going to happen because it was prophesied and he believes the prophecy. But he's praying it anyway. Why do we pray? We pray to line ourselves up with the Lord. We pray to get the garbage out of our own heart and replace it with the goodness of God. And if we really, 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 really understand that, and we really embrace that, and we really own it, then we come away with, like our shopping, our Santa Claus list just went to zero. You ever notice that? Please catch this. If we're really surrendered to God, and we know that God is God, and we're not, and God's a lot smarter than we are, and I sure would like to sort of be in touch with the mind of God, my shopping list just goes way, way, way down. Job, one of my, one of my favorite examples, the book of Job. Job is a, is a series of discourses for really chapter three to verse to chapter 37. Job talks and his friends talk and Job says, man, and, and when, you, when you look at what Job says, much of what Job says, man, if I had a chance to talk to God, man, I'd be like a, I'd, I'd give him a piece of my mind. And I would ask him why he's dealt so treacherously with me. And I'll tell you, you can just almost see it in Job's gestures. Right? If I, and then chapter 38, many know the story. God shows up. God revealed, catch this now. Go back and read it. Chapter 38 to 42 of Job. It's brilliant. God shows up and he says, hang on a second. Were you there when I created the world and I told the ocean, you can come to this point on the beach, but no further? Were you, were you there that day? I don't think so. 
Uh, were you there when I made uh, all, the, all the world, all the stars, all the animals, all the natural world? Were you there that day? No. And it goes through this whole thing of God just kind of graciously reels Job in. Can you catch this for a second? Please catch this. Here's the point, I believe, of the book of Job. God never answered his questions. God just revealed himself. And then at the end of God revealing himself, God basically says to Job, okay, now, now it's your turn. Tell me what's on your mind. And Job says, never mind. <laughs> right? That's the book of Job. That should be the book of us. We think we have all these needs and all these concerns and all these things that God needs to work out. And if we just pray and read his word and study him and learn who he is, then our list changes. If we delight ourselves also in the Lord, he shall give us the desires of our heart. And we keep praying, but that's what needs to happen as we pray. Verse 13, as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we've not made our prayer before the Lord our God, that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. That's another purpose of prayer. That, that's a cause word, that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us, for the Lord is, our God is righteous in all the works which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and, with, and made your, yourself a name, as it is written this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. So, he says, we need to pray so we can turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. And then notice also, again, he reviews the history of God's working with the Jewish people that he's been so good to them all the way along. Verse 16, O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because of our, for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. Now, therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications. And for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. Oh, my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city, which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. He's basically saying, God, please do what you say you're going to do. I know you are, but please listen and hear. Act according to your great mercies. Now, while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin, the sin of my people, Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, this is the angel Gabriel, same one that uh, came to him earlier, the same one uh, who came to uh, Mary and Zechariah, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering, and he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. And so here's what's interesting. 
Daniel prays about their situation, their captivity, the fact that they've been carried off to Babylon and they're stuck here now under the reign of the Medes and the Persians. And Daniel's praying about the situation, the political tension, and hey, can we please go back to Jerusalem and Judah and resettle it? And just like the book of Job, God is coming back with a completely different answer. It's like God is answering the question that he didn't ask. Because in our lives, Ephesians chapter 3, God chooses to bless us above and beyond what we can ask or think. As we, start to, as we learn to pray like Daniel, you know, Romans chapter 8 tells us that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us because we don't know what to pray. And this is the situation with Daniel. So he's going to get this amazing, amazing prophecy. You ready? Okay. First half was prayer. Second half is prophecy. Here we go. Ready? Are you feeling it? It might be in dramatic. Thank you. Okay. This prophecy has sort of, <clears throat> think of two aspects of this prophecy, and I highlight this. One is going to, as a part that's been already fulfilled with amazing precision such that nobody could make this stuff up. And two, just like all prophecy, therefore, there's some parts that's yet to be fulfilled. But if we look again, just like with the history, with the kingdoms, right? Daniel, this, it's called the 70 weeks prophecy. A lot of it's been fulfilled, amazing precision. A lot of it's yet to be fulfilled. How do we think it's going to be fulfilled? With amazing what? Precision, right? It's consistency. It's consistency. And that's how this seems to always play out. So here's what, Dan, here's what Gabriel says to Daniel. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to, rec to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, to anoint the most holy. So, verse 24. Seventy weeks. The word weeks is better translated sevens. So think of it as seventy sevens are determined for your people and for your holy city. Now, in the scripture, this word that we see here is weeks, the word sevens, is interpreted usually based upon the context. Okay, all we have is seventy sevens. But according to the context, most most Bible students would agree that basically this means years. So 70 groups of seven years are determined for your people and for your holy city. How many, how many years is 70 groups of seven? 490. Now I'm just going to tell you this at the outset of this. If you need to pull out your phones and get a calculator going, this is probably the one Sunday that I'll say, go ahead and pull out your phone and do what you need to do. Okay. 70 groups of seven, how many? 490 years. 490 years are determined for your people. Who are Daniel's people? The Jews. Now, do you remember, I won't put him up here, but remember Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the statue? It highlighted, there's the Babylonian head of gold, remember that? There's the chest of silver that represents the Medes and the Persians. There's then the belly of uh, bronze, which represents uh, the Greeks. 
and there's the legs uh, of iron, which represents the Roman Empire, and then there's ten toes, which represents a resurrected Roman Empire, and out of that resurrected Roman Empire, the ten toes, comes a guy we call the Antichrist, right? Everybody got that? Okay. If you don't have that, that's fine. Just go back and listen to the tape or whatever, okay? Are those Jewish nations? What's unique about those that we might call them? Gentiles. So God deals with the Jews. God is carrying out his prophetic plan, okay? For God so loved who? The world that he gave his only begotten son. So God wants the salvation of everybody. But in that, he deals with the Jew in a certain prophetic scheme and the Gentile in a certain prophetic scheme. Okay? Do I dictate this? No. I'm just studying it. Okay? The scheme of the Gentiles that he's, that he's dealing with is really highlighted in, in the, the image of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, Daniel chapter 2. I refer you back to that. But now we're going to talk about God's dealing with the Jewish people. Why do I say that? Because he says 70 weeks are determined for your people. That's the Jewish people. And your holy city. Where's that? If there's a city on earth that you might think is God's holy city, what is it? Jerusalem, for sure. Now, so 490 years are determined to deal with the Jewish people and the city of Jerusalem specifically. So through this 490 years, what's going to happen? Well, transgression, sin, and iniquity are all going to be finished and dealt with, reconciled. Has that happened? Anybody? Is transgression finished on planet Earth with the Jewish people? No. Is sin ended? No. Is uh, all iniquity reconciled? No. Is everlasting righteousness brought in yet? No. So is this, is this been done or is this yet future? It's yet future. This is going to happen by the end of the 70 weeks. By the end of the 490 year time period, all that's going to happen. And to anoint the most holy, if you're... If you're if you care about this much detail, the word, the, the word for the original language for the most holy really refers to the holy of holies in the temple. Most, most Bible people agree with that. But clearly these things have not happened yet. So let's go in for a little more, little more clarity, a little more understanding. He says, verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now, whether or not you got your calculator out, what's 70, we, what's 70 plus 60, I'm sorry, what's 7 plus 62? Are you serious? What's 7, what's 7 plus 62? 69. There you go. There you go. All right. You're back. It's good to have you back. 69. All right. From the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. That's 69 weeks. The street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublesome times. Now, what in the world does that mean? So, from the time, 
from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. What does that refer to? It refers to a decree that somebody would have given to go back and restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Do you remember during, I mean, at the time here, this is kind of what we're talking about, right? During the reign of, uh, when the Persians come and take over, Cyrus is going to issue a decree in, uh, we, we read about it in Ezra chapter 1, that was in 537 B.C. He's going to say, hey, you guys go back and, and start rebuilding your temple. And then later, Darius in Ezra chapter 6, 517 B.C., uh, said, hey, you guys go back and work on that temple. And then Artaxerxes later in Ezra chapter 7 told Ezra, hey, go back and help him work on that temple. And then, in Art- and then Artaxerxes in 445 B.C., Nehemiah chapter 2, ne- es- the king says, go back and rebuild what? The temple? The wall. Remember Nehemiah? What did he build? Did he build a temple? No. He built a wall. He built the city. So there's four decrees, if you will, in this time period that, are, that could be referred to. Three of them are all about going back and building the temple. One of them is going back and building the wall, building the city. Okay, let's read this again. So from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again, what? And the wall. Even in troublesome times. So probably... Uh, most people would say, or at least most people that read the Bible like we do, like I do, would say that the starting point of this time period that he's talking about is when Artaxerxes in Nehemiah chapter 2 tells Nehemiah, go back and build the wall. Is that fair? Now you say, do we have any like historical, like even an extra biblical time frame? Yes. That was in March 14th, if you do the math, that was March 14th, 445 B.C. March 14th, 445 B.C. Okay, so if that's a starting point of a timeline, March 14th, 445 B.C. And he says from that time point, if you go forward seven weeks and 62 weeks, what are you going to get? What's it say? Until what? Messiah the Prince. There in verse 25. So from the starting point, the decree of, of Nehemiah chapter 2, March 14th, 445 B.C., there's going to be seven weeks and 62 weeks. 69 weeks. 69 groups of seven. All right? What happens if you multiply 69 by seven? What do you get? How many years? 483. Right? So if you had, yeah, 483. All right? Now, the ancient calendar, this is where I'm going to say it's a little bit of detail. Just hang with me for a second. Okay? Everybody with me? Need to stretch anything? Go get a cup of coffee? Okay. If you take 483 years, all the ancient calendars had 360-day calendar, 60-day years. So if you take 483 times 360-day calendars, 60 days in a year, how many days do you get? Anybody? You get 173,880 days. Everybody okay with that? Let me do it again. Let me do it again. 
There's an honest young man in the front row. Okay? He said yes. March 14th, 445 B.C. We're going to go from that point. We want to know what, we want to know, I mean, if we get a, if we read a prophecy about Messiah, the prince, and I'm a Jew, I want to know, right? If I go from March 14th, 445 B.C., and I march forward 483 years, because that's seven sevens and 62 sevens, that's 69 sevens, I get 483 years. And if I march out 483 years by a 360-day calendar year, I get 173,880 days. Now, what do you suppose might happen? If you know the answer, don't give it away. If I start, if I, if I march out on a calendar from March 14th, 445 B.C., people smarter than I have figured this out, by the way. I didn't come up with this. And I march forward 173,880 days. Anybody want to guess what I get? I get April the 6th, 32 A.D. Anybody know what happened on April the 6th, 32 A.D.? Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey on Palm Sunday. Is God precise? Is God precise? Now, knowing that, let's read this again. Is that fair? Because some of you are saying, where were we? Know therefore and understand, Gabriel says, that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, Nehemiah chapter 2, until Messiah the Prince, Palm Sunday, there's going to be seven weeks and 62 weeks, basically 173,880 days. The street will be built again, and the wall, even in troublesome times. All right? Now think about this for a second. The very day that Jesus rode in to Jerusalem on a donkey on Palm Sunday, April the 6th, 32 A.D., was prophesied back in 539 B.C. Is God precise? God's very precise. God's very precise. Now, think about it again. What did they do to Jesus? What did, they, what did the people do that day on Palm Sunday? They said, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Right? And what did the Pharisees do? Did they like that? No. They knew that the people were identifying him as the Messiah. As a matter of fact, prior to that day, do you ever notice, like as you read through the Gospels, every time you turn around, Jesus says, my time has what? Not yet come. John chapter 2, they're at a wedding in Cana. Jesus' mother Mary says, hey, they're out of wine. Hey, why do you, he says, my hour has not yet come. John chapter 7, his brothers are trying to get him to go to Jerusalem to kind of promote his ministry a little bit. He says, my hour has not yet come. Every time you turn around the Gospels, when Jesus is talking about timing, he says, my hour has not yet come. But in Luke chapter 19, verses 41 to 42, after Jesus rides in 
Well, let's start in verse 37. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. By the way, they're quoting from Psalm 118, which everybody in the Jewish world knew was a messianic psalm. Everybody that day knew that Jesus was being identified as the Messiah, the King of the Jews. And some of the Pharisees called out to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, even the stones would immediately cry out. Now, check this out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it. Saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this, what? Your day. The things that make for your peace but now they are hidden from your eyes. Jesus said to the city, he wept over the city, and he said, if you had known in this your day. Why did Jesus Jesus point it out that way? Because the day had been prophesied by the prophet Daniel. And the day was the same day that he wrote in on Palm Sunday. Verse 26, and after the 62 weeks, so after, after that, okay, catch now, the verse, in verse 26, we say after that time, and then in the beginning of verse 27, the first word is then. So we've got an interval now between the, six, the six, 62 weeks and the seven weeks, the 69 weeks. We've got an interval between that and what we're going to read about in verse 27, Okay. After the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the 62 means the 62 plus the 7 referenced in verse 25. Was Messiah cut off? Let me give you a hint. The, The Hebrew word also means killed. Was Jesus killed? Yes. Yes. But not for himself, but for us. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war. Desolations are determined. Now, do you remember Nebuchadnezzar's statue? Okay. The prince who is to come, most people would say, is a reference to the Antichrist. Who's the people of the prince who is to come? The prince, the Antichrist is going to come out of those ten toes, remember? The ten toes is a resurrected what? Roman Empire. Okay, so who are the people of the prince who is to come? Are they Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, or Romans? Romans. Shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. What happened in 70 AD to Jerusalem? It was destroyed. What happened to the sanctuary? It was destroyed. Remember Jesus went on, the, on the Olivet Discourse, Matthew chapter 24? They said, hey, isn't this an amazing temple? And Jesus said, I'll tell you what, the time's going to come that not one stone is going to be left on another. And again, you can literally go to, we saw it, you can go to Jerusalem today, and you can see a big pile of stones off to the side of the, of the Temple Mount uh, that have been left there for all those years. In 70 AD, the Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. And the people of the prince who is to come, that's the Romans, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. 
carried out very precisely. The end of it shall be a flood with a flood. The word flood there, again, we, got, we lose a little bit in the translation, admittedly, but the word flood there could also be like disper- dispersion. What happened to, what happened to the, the land after the, after the Romans, right? What, what would you do if you were a Jew in, the, in 70 AD? You'd skedaddle, right? There was a dispersion. And really, literally, prophetically, if you look at it, that dispersion happened from 70 AD until 1948, the nation of Israel is regathered, right? We see that prophesied in Ezekiel chapter uh, 37. Verse 27, then, so after that time period, and again, that time period is not well defined, and, and we can say that we are in that time period, then he shall confirm a covenant. So the then, verse 27. So right now we are living in, in terms of, if you want to put it in the prophetic timeline, we're living in Daniel chapter 9, verse 26. We're between the after of Palm Sunday and we're before the then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. So that's the 70th week. Okay, the 69 weeks happen between Nehemiah chapter 2 and Palm Sunday, and there's an interval that we are now living in, and then there's a final week, if you will, a final seven-year period that God is going to deal with the Jewish people, okay? And we call that the tribulation period, okay? So, then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. When the Antichrist comes... He, this is the he's referencing, um, the prince who is to come. He, he shall confirm a covenant with the Jewish people for a seven-year period. When the Antichrist comes, and he's pictured in uh, Revelation uh, chapter 6 as coming in riding on a white horse, He's going to look all peaceful. He's actually, you know, Jesus at the end in chapter, I believe, 19, comes in on a white horse. So the Antichrist kind of comes in looking, trying to maybe look like Jesus. He's the guy that they think is going to be their Messiah. He's going to be a peacemaker. He's going to be a world problem solver. He's going to fix everything, right? And in so doing, he's going to promise to rebuild their temple, right? If you see the temple going up in Jerusalem... That means you missed the rapture. Okay? He's going to start, he's going to start building the temple. And uh, he's going to make a covenant with them. And he's going to be a peacemaker. And they're going to think he, he was it. But in the middle of that week, at the three and a half year mark, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wings of abominations shall be one who makes desolate even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. And so, what's he going to do? In the midpoint of the tribulation, he's going to go into this newly built temple. He's going to demand to be worshipped. You may recall, if you were here last week, Antiochus Epiphanes from the Seleucid Empire at the, uh, after the Greek Empire was divided into four sections. Antiochus Epiphanes, remember this we talked about last week? He went into the Holy of Holies in the temple in that day. I think it was about 145 B.C., I forget the exact date. Uh, he went into the Holy of Holies 
and set up an altar to Zeus, sacrificed a pig on it as a mockery to the Jewish people, and uh, led really the Maccabean revolt. Okay, I refer you back to last week. So he is a picture, a type, if you will, of what's yet to come. So what's going to happen in, the, in, in that last seven-year period, in that tribulation period? In the middle of that time, the Antichrist shall bring an end of sacrifice and offering on the wing of abominations, shall be one who makes desolate. He's going to basically do a repeat of what Antiochus Epiphanes did. He's going to desecrate the Holy of Holies. Matthew chapter 24. Jesus himself says this. Again, keep in mind, Jesus is talking to a Jewish audience when he says these things. Chapter 24, verse 15, Jesus is telling his Jewish disciples, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, that's what he's referring to, Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. Unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Now, that's going to be an ugly time on planet Earth. It's detailed in Revelation chapter 6 through 18. It's going to be an ugly time on planet Earth. And the Jewish people are going to make a deal with the Antichrist. He's going to be their peacemaker. They're going to think he's their Messiah. He's going to promise to build their temple. And halfway through that seven-year period, he's going to reveal his true colors. And Jesus, is going to, and Jesus says, when you see that happen, scatter. Just run. And it's going to be an ugly time on Earth. Now, again... That's the tribulation period. What happens prior to the tribulation period, I believe? The rapture of the church, right? We will be out of here. What makes me say that? Turn over to 2 Thessalonians, if you want. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and then we'll wrap up. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 3. Paul says, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. Now, falling away, again, we lose a little bit in translation, is also uh, translated departure. So uh, we, would, we would understand that to refer to the rapture. So that day will not come unless, I believe, the rapture comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. That's the Antichrist. That's just more detail on what we just read in Daniel. He said, do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Is the mystery of lawlessness at work on planet Earth today? 
do we see like, okay, so people get weird about this. Like, do you think the Antichrist is this guy? Right? Have you ever heard anybody say that? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, we don't go there. Uh, we look for Jesus. We don't look for the Antichrist, okay? Because we're going to be raptured before the Antichrist, okay? But is the mystery of lawlessness kind of revving up? Is it alive on earth today? Do we have, like, demonic influence in our world today? Seriously? Yes. He says, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And by the way, many of us, and I know you guys are all fired up about this, think that, you know, the rapture could be tomorrow. Could the rapture be tomorrow? Could it be 100 years from now? Yeah. See, when... Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, and I just say this because we all have a different response to prophecy. Okay, let me just say it that way. And some of us are like, bring it on. I think it's happening tomorrow. It very well could be. Okay? Keep in mind, in the New Testament, the New Testament letters of Paul, the, ones, the, the, the Thessalonian church was the one that he wrote most about prophecy, okay? The Thessalonian church was like, it's going to happen any minute. And they were like sitting around not doing what they need to do, right? They're kind of like this, right? Well, you still need to be responsible and do your work and preach the gospel and, and thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? If, if, if reading prophecy makes you say, you know, I think I'm just going to like, get a bunch of guns and, and dig a hole and live in it, right? Don't do that, okay? Live your life. Impact the world for Christ. If that ha and so therefore, if Jesus comes back tomorrow, guess what? You spent today well. If Jesus comes back 100 years from now, guess what? You spent today well. And so that was Paul's, in a sense, admonition to the, to the Thessalonians. But he says, the mystery of lawlessness has already worked. My point in that is, the mystery of lawlessness was, work, was at work in the first century A.D. when Paul wrote this. It's already at work. Only he, and you may notice your Bibles, that's capitalized. That's he, the Holy Spirit. He who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Okay? Do you notice we notice that there's a spirit of lawlessness at work, right? Do we also notice, I hope we do, that the Holy Spirit is alive and well? Do we notice that? Do we notice that God, I mean, I'm always amazed that God is working in the lives of people. Individually, socially, as a community, I think God is working in this community. I believe God is working in this church, and I believe God is working in the lives of individuals. Do we see that? Yes, yes we see that. So both are there. What do you suppose would happen on earth if all the Christians were suddenly raptured? We'll review. We got the spirit of lawlessness, and we got the Holy Spirit, right? If all of a sudden, and the Holy Spirit lives in where? In us. And we're all gone. There's a bit of a vacuum, is there not? What's going to happen? Pretty ripe for the tribulation. Pretty ripe for the Antichrist to come in and deceive a bunch of naive people. Right? Because he who now restrains this tug of good and evil, 
He who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawlessness will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Right? Could God come back tomorrow? Or today? Yes. You bet. Come back for the rapture of his church. Right? Jesus comes back for the rapture of the church. We meet him in the air and we go up. Right? That could happen today. That could happen 100 years from now. But it could happen today. Meanwhile, we are to be busy. And I love what Paul says in the context this is a different in 1st Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 18 Paul was wrapping up his other discourse on the second coming he says therefore comfort one another with these words prophecy should be comforting to us I hope we take comfort in the fact that God predicted by the words of Daniel the day Jesus would ride in on Palm Sunday I take tremendous comfort in that I take that to mean, I don't think anything's going to throw God a curveball. And I am comforted by those words. And I take that to mean, you know what, in yet future, I think there's going to be a rapture of the church and then a tribulation, and, and, and I'm praying for the peace of Jerusalem, and I'm praying for the Jewish people because God loves those Jewish people. God has not cast aside the Jewish people and replaced them with the church, which is a common theology today, by the way. Are free to Romans 11, in the interest of time, I won't read it. Romans 11.1 1 says, has God cast away the Jewish people? No way. Paul said, I'm a Jewish people. I'm a Jew. I'm, the, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Pharisee. Has God cast away the Jewish people? Well, if he did, I'm one of them. No, Paul did, God didn't cast away the Jewish people. And so God loves the Jewish people. God has a plan for the reconciliation, for the end of transgression and iniquity and all that uh, at the beginning of that prophecy to be done through the nation of Israel. And so, number one, comfort one another with these words. Number two, beware of anti-Semitism. Beware of, of uh, hatred for the Jewish people. It's as old as Pharaoh, Haman, Hitler, and everybody in between. Beware of that. But also, if we delight ourselves in the Lord, he'll give us the desires of our heart. And we'll say things like, come Jesus, come. Right? If I understand all these things, and I understand the big prophetic picture, and I understand that he loves me, and that he died for me individually, my little list of things just kind of, kind of fades away like Job's. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you that you are so involved in our lives. Lord, you didn't just create the world and leave it to sort itself out. Lord, you didn't entrust this world to us. You didn't entrust this world to politicians. You didn't entrust this world to... Uh, anybody but you and so Lord we, we rest in your goodness we take comfort in your words and Lord we desire we desire to see uh, things as you see them 
We desire to serve you. We desire to bring people into your kingdom. We desire to encourage one another. And so, Lord, help us to be an encouragement to others as we look to you, the author and finisher of our faith. As we look forward to all that you'll do, whether it's what you'll do today or what you'll do whenever, and we surrender that to you. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Everybody have an awesome, awesome week.